If you would, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. Um, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed this morning and the next couple of mornings, um, right up to Thanksgiving. Uh, that's not something we normally do here. We don't normally talk about doctrinal creedal statements. Normally we focus on the biblical text and only the biblical text that kind of defines who we are. Um, but we are going to take these next three Sundays to talk about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it'll be up on the screen um, while we're here this morning. Um, it's in our Constitution and bylaws, which define us legally. It's also in the flyer that we hand out to the community. Um, so people ask why, and I touched on this last week. People ask why do we have to have a, um, a doctrinal statement after all, especially one written, written by humans, you know, by men, right? Doesn't the Bible warn us about that? Doesn't the Bible warn us about doctrines of men? Well, it does. It does. Colossians 2.22, Paul cautions us about that. Um, doesn't the Bible warn us about the traditions of men? It does. Uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus himself warned us about the traditions of men. Um, I've been asked, isn't it enough to just say we believe in the Bible? Isn't, isn't that enough? Well, we do believe in the Bible. We believe the Bible is divinely inspired. The Bible makes that clear. All Scripture is inspired. God breathed. God directed the authors of Scripture to write what they wrote. So we believe the Bible is inspired. We believe it's accurate. I think we all know we don't actually have the originals. We have manuscripts that were made from copies and we have translations of those but the manuscript record of scripture old testament and new is absolutely unparalleled in the history of literature there is no other document of antiquity that has been as meticulously studied guarded watched over and evaluated as scripture another thing about the accuracy of scripture that we don't often think about not in a positive light is that I think it's safe to say there's probably no book ever written that's been criticized as much as the Bible. And if you think about that for a moment, that's not an altogether bad thing. Because with all the criticism directed at Scripture, if there was something there that was wrong, we'd sure hear about it, wouldn't we? I mean, if you think about it, if you know some great scholar discovered that a whole chapter of Homer's Iliad wasn't supposed to be there, you know, he found an older, more accurate copy of Homer's Iliad, and he published it in the scholarly, you know, documents. The whole chapter was wrong. Well, I'm sure the academic world would catch on fire, but I don't think it'd be on CNN. You know, wow, the Iliad's off by a chapter, right? No. But if somebody suddenly found that a whole chapter in Matthew's Gospel didn't belong there, you can bet we'd hear about it, right? But we haven't. So even the criticism directed at Scripture serves also to ensure its accuracy. So we can believe that Scripture is accurate. Therefore, we can say it's authoritative. It speaks to us. It is our guide, not just to what we believe, but everything that we do. It is our rule of faith and conduct. So we believe in the Bible, right? But it's one thing to say you believe in the Bible... It's another thing to say we believe what the Bible teaches. It's one thing to say we believe in the Bible. It's another one to answer the question, well, what do you think the Bible means? That's a much more challenging question. It's also more relevant. And so from the earliest years of the church, there has been an effort to express 
the essential truths of the Bible, the essential truths of the gospel, in a way that those across the whole spectrum of the Christian community can agree with, at least in principle. And these were the early creeds, right? So we have in the Apostles' Creed, we'll talk a little bit about it, how it was created, a statement that churches literally from east to west agree on. Not completely, not perfectly, but at least in general. We don't believe it's inspired. We don't contend for the exact wording. And that's really where we, where we save ourselves from getting in trouble with doctrinal statements. You know, the, the fellowship that Pastor Joyce and I were, were educated and trained in, it had 14 fundamental statements of truth. And everybody that graduated from our college had to memorize those. And I'll never forget standing in, sitting in the class one day and the professor asking, uh, who, can, who can recite from memory the 14 doctrinal statements? And every hand, or almost every hand, but I don't think mine did. Um, but a bunch of hands went up. He said, great. Now who can recite the opening paragraph, the preamble? Every hand went down. Nobody could remember anything from the preamble. Because it was in the preamble that it said, we don't fight for the exact wording of these doctrinal statements, only for the truth they represent. And boy, did that change that discussion in a hurry. Yeah, these doctrinal statements are valuable if we use them as expressions of truth, but we're not interested in getting in fights over the exact wording. I'm just not interested in going there. Right? So they're essential documents that help us express what we believe. They establish a measure of accountability for us. When somebody asks me, what does Gateway Christian Fellowship believe, I can say, we believe the Bible. And then I get that look like, okay, what next? What do you think it means? What do you think it says? And then I said, well, all you have to do is read the Apostles' Creed. You have a pretty good, pretty good idea what we believe. So it serves a useful purpose. We don't believe it's divinely inspired, but it's a tool that we use to complete the task. And so what I'd like to do this morning, at least start this morning, is talk a little bit about the importance of being able to make clear, succinct statements about what we believe, the importance of a direct statement. Talk a little bit about this particular statement, its history, the Apostles' Creed, and then lastly turn to the text of the Creed, at least to get started. And I want to do that through a lens of Scripture, one particular verse of Scripture. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Paul writes this, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. That's the same word as doctrine. Exact same word can be translated either way. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, as we are talking this morning, not about your word directly, but about a human attempt to summarize the essence of what your word says to us about this essential subject of our salvation. Lord, give us wisdom, the presence and guidance of your spirit, and what is said, what is heard, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin by just reading through the creed this morning. Uh, it goes this way. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, before we go any farther, who can spot the one word I changed? We went from Holy Catholic Church to Holy Universal Church. Why did I do that, right? Because, number one, I don't want to argue about the exact wording. If they use the word Holy Catholic Church in the 5th century, that's fine. The word does not refer to the Roman Catholic Church. It refers to the universal church. That's what the word Catholic meant. So in our contemporary setting, it's a better communication. It's simply more accurate to say universal church. So then people ask me, well, you mean like the Unitarian Church? No, not that. So you still end up explaining it. But that simply illustrates how we try to express the idea. We're not caught up in the exact wording. But that's the creed we're talking about. And what I want to start with this morning are the two most important words in the creed. The two most important in this, um, words in this amazing doctrinal statement. They are, I believe. The first two words. I believe. Because if you don't believe it, it doesn't make any difference. If you don't believe it, it doesn't have any effect on your life. Again, we don't claim it to be scripture. We don't believe it like we believe the Bible, but we believe it's a statement of what we believe. Interestingly, in the Western Church, this is called the Apostles' Creed. In the Eastern Church, by that I mean Greek, Serbian, Russian, Ukrainian, the Orthodox churches, it's called the I believe. You want to talk about this? You say, I want to talk about the I believe because of the importance of the individual decision to assert these things is true. You can say, I believe it to be true. I believe and I have made this the emphasis of my life. I'm betting eternity on it because I only got a one-way ticket. And I'm going I'm to bet that one-way ticket on the truth of this statement. You know, we can, we can go through life pretending that we don't care about eternity. That's a fool's decision to make because we do have one shot it's like the guy at the roulette wheel with one chip to bet. <laughs> it is better than that because it's not all luck, but it is a one-shot deal. One shot, and eternity hangs in the balance. So we can say without qualification, I believe. There is extraordinary power in an unqualified affirmation. To say without any reservation, I believe. I think about Job. Job amazes me. Job lived before volume one was written, and he already knew what was in volume two. Because at one of the lowest points of his life, when virtually everything had fallen apart, and he is absolutely convinced that not only has his wife turned against him, not only has his friends turned against him, but he thinks even God himself has turned against him. And he made that absolutely clear. And yet in the middle of that, Job would say, I know my Redeemer lives. And though my flesh may be destroyed, I will see him in the flesh. He had an absolute convinced conviction in the resurrection. Where that came from, I have absolutely no idea. But Job was prepared to say, I know my Redeemer lives, period, end of sentence. There's power in a statement like that. You know, 
Yet Job would also say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Period. End of sentence. There's incredible power in a statement like that. And boy, isn't that different than the way we communicate today? Have you noticed how, how difficult it is for so many people to say anything without slipping a word like, basically, in? What does that mean? Right? Or more or less, what does that mean? We have become artisans at qualifying what we say. I want to say anything but an absolute yes or an absolute no. I always want to weigh out, I guess. Ask, ask even a Christian. Um, is having sex outside of marriage a sin? Well, it depends on the circumstances. No, it is a sin. Is watching porn a sin? Yes. Cheating on your spouse a sin? Yes. Cheating in your business a sin? Yes. Right? Not yes, kind, no, yes. End of sentence. It's really important that we be able to say things clearly. Because, you know, people want clear answers. Right? Of course, m most of the discussion in my home, for some inexplicable reason, revolves around pregnant women. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, don't think, I don't think my wife, and she, doesn't, she never uses names. When she, when she comes home, she never uses names. Any disclosing information. I don't think I've ever heard her say this lady came in and she wanted to know if she was pregnant and we said maybe and she was so happy. <laughs> no, they want an answer, right? There's a power in a clear, definitive statement. So I can say I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, I believe in the things asserted in the Bible about the person of Christ. Pay close attention, Paul said, to yourself, to your teaching. Persevere in them. That means don't just stay them, but remain on them. Make your living, make your place of dwelling on those things that you've said to be true. Persevere in them, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Our ability and our willingness to make clear, definitive statements actually contributes not only to our own salvation, but to the people around us. People need to hear the truth clearly. People seeking truth want and need a straight answer. It's so important that we be able to give that to them. So let's talk about the creed just a little bit, how it came to be. Um, it's a product of the earliest, earliest periods of the church. The church, it's not the work of the apostles. It was given that name because it was an attempt to express what the apostles taught. Uh, but it was an understanding in the church that they needed something like this, right? For a couple of different reasons. The first was theological, right? Now, we often forget, you know, when we're talking about this kind of stuff, um, that we've had 2,000 years to hammer out the tough theological questions like who exactly is Jesus? And how does Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, how does that whole thing work? You know, we've had 2,000 years to figure that out, right? Now, we haven't got all the answers. You know, if you, know, you get a Calvinist and an Arminian in the same room and they start going at it, they got all kinds of things to say, but none of it's going to be new, right? They're just going to rehash what's been said for the last thousand years, right? We've had plenty of time to work things out as far as we're going to work them out, right? But in the first couple centuries, they didn't have that. All they had were questions. Who is Jesus? How does this Jesus and the Father thing work? And then you put the Spirit in. How does that work, right? So it was understood... There had to be some type of agreement 
that we could come to in the greater body of Christ that would expect, express a measure of agreement, right? The essential question. And we're not talking about every detail of Scripture. No, we're talking about the essential questions. Who is Jesus? How does salvation work? How do I go from being a vile, corrupt sinner to being a child of God, like, instantly? How does that work, right? Those are questions that had to be answered to some measure. And this was an attempt to do that, right? The other um, reason was more practical. People didn't have Bibles to carry around because the Bible hadn't been put together yet, right? Copies that existed were really expensive. You know, we're carrying out a bunch of scrolls. doesn't work too well. Um, so something was needed that was kind of short and pithy. If you think about this, look at the phrase construction here. This is actually artwork. It really is. I believe in Jesus Christ, or I believe in God the Father Almighty. Boom. Who here can't remember that? I can remember that. Ask your buddy in the cafe, my memory is legendary. I forget stuff so easy. Right. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Period. I can remember that. And because I can remember it, I can apply it. Right? These are truths that were stated in ways in these short, pithy phrases that could be remembered. I can meditate on that. I can meditate on the reality that God is my Father. I was blessed to have a really good father. I know that not everybody that's true of, but I think even people that didn't have a good father have some idea what a father should be. And to know that that is how God relates to me as a father. And that he is almighty. He has all power, all might, all strength. It's in his hands. I can affirm that to be true. Right? There's a practical reason. Interestingly, though, even before this got written, around the year 380, um, the writers of the New Testament were already working on it. Right? Go back one page, if you would, to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and look at verse 16. Let's back up, actually, to verse um, 14. Paul writes this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Look at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in glory, rather believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's one of the first examples of a doctrinal statement that could be memorized and easily repeated. The essentials of the character of Christ. Even before the New Testament was closed, the church was starting to work on this. It was understood that it would be needed. By the end of the second century, the church was looking for a more comprehensive statement. By the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea, a formal creed had been drafted, and it was refined by the fifth century, and that's what we have today. It's been in use from east to west, recognized by the church universal, or church Catholic if you prefer that, right? Completely recognized. We have a statement of essential beliefs agreed upon by the greater church body, at least in principle, right? Now, with that understanding, let's just talk about, let's just start to get into it. We'll, again, have the next couple of weeks to look in more detail. The creed starts with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I've already spoken to this briefly. I believe the power of a clear declarative statement. It helps me to make it. It helps my hearers when they hear it. At least they know where I stand. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I put my trust, my faith, my life in him. Now this, by the way, does not attribute gender to God. 
If you read through the Old Testament, you also find multiple references to God as a mother. Mother hen, watching over her chicks. Jesus used that expression. But it describes God in terms that we can relate as one who loves us, cares for us, whose focus of adoration is upon us as a father should be, and creator of heaven and earth. The question of the proof or the demonstration, as Aquinas wrote, of the existence of God is bound up in the fact that we're all here. Aquinas called it the reason or the argument of first cause. We all came from someplace. Everything made came from something else. Everything made is made of something else, and it all had to start with something. God alone exists outside of cause and effect. He's simply cause. Creator of heaven and earth. These two truths provide the foundation to all that we believe. Everything we believe ultimately rests on these two truths. That God is a loving Father and He is the creator of everything. Now it is for us to acknowledge that daily. To bring that understanding into our lives. Well, what does it look like when we bring those two truths into our life? That God exists as a loving Father and Mother if you look at the whole of the Old Testament. And he is creator. First of all, it caused me to work with, walk with humility. I'm really not as important as I thought I was, except in his sight. It causes me to walk with confidence, as badly as I may screw things up, God's still got my life in control. It causes me to walk with love and charity, because that's how he looks upon me. And as his child, I should express it equally. And it causes me to walk with a holy expectation that things will turn out well. Because that's his plan for me. It gives me great confidence to know that he is both my loving father and absolutely all-powerful, almighty. I really believe that these two qualities, these two initial thoughts demonstrated in, in the I believe, the, the creed, can um, really touch our lives. Because they're both beautiful and enduring. Beautiful not just in their literary beauty, the beautiful, beautiful piece of, of literature, but also in its essential truth. And it's beautiful in its endurance. And, and I'll, I'll close with this this morning. As I was going over this in my mind, the whole idea of how a creedal statement works, because it's not the word of God, we don't believe it's the word of God, I started to think about the analogy between a creedal statement like this and the building that we gather in. You know, the church, right? The building, right? We know it's not the building, right? But we use the building to accomplish our ends. The church body, proper use of the word, uses the church building, improper use of the word, to accomplish its purposes, to draw people to the Lord, a place and a tool for discipleship, teaching, learning, for worship, all that we do. It facilitates all that we do. And as I was thinking about that, how a building is a lot like a creedal statement. My thoughts went back to a particular church. And if we can pull the picture up, this is a church that it, some of you may remember it. It's about seven blocks away from where my office used to be, uh, but it took me like five years to find it. Right? I was wandering through downtown Athens, and I, oh, there's that church. I've been looking for that church. It's actually even smaller than it looks. It's a really tiny, tiny church. Uh, the name of the church... Uh, the name of the church is the Panagia Capnicaria. Panagia Capnicaria, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, 
it was built in 1052. So this church is approaching its 1200th anniversary, right? We actually found it. We were looking for a lunch place, you know. Where you eat lunch is a big deal when you live in Athens. Oh, it's really important, right? And we found, we were looking for a lunch place, which we found, but I thought, man, I forget lunch. I got to go look at this cool church building, right? And I started to walk around it and just study it, and I've, I've learned a lot about it ever since. This church is a survivor. This church is a real survivor. It survived the 400 years of Turkish occupation. Uh, it survived a couple of world wars. Uh, it survived um, a firebombing, a, a deliberate attempt to firebomb it. Um, the last attempt, believe it or not, was a decision by the Athens city planners that it was just in the way. You've got to be kidding me. Fortunately, the people of higher places in government decided that wasn't a really good idea. Um, what I like about it, and what struck me, um, if you're in church buildings, you'll, you'll appreciate this, is for one thing, notice the variation in the stone as you go from down low to up high, how the stone changes drastically. That tells you this church has been like repaired a lot. It's been through a lot. Um, if you look at the, um, the stonework in, the, in the, the lower left corner, it's not the best. There's some pretty rough, irregular stones in the front. Um, that tells you this church was built from rubble, right? You know, you put this next to like the Parthenon with its beautiful marble slabs. This just, you look at this like, what is, it's built from rubble, right? Um, it actually is below the city street level. If you look carefully, you can tell that once you step over that little rail, you drop down about a foot and a half, which means that Athens was, you know, leveled and then rebuilt, leveled and rebuilt. The city raises, that happens in antiquity. So you know this church goes back at least a foot and a half, right? If you want to use that for your time. But the thing that really struck me about this was the first time I looked at it, if you look at that, that semicircular window on the right-hand side, Look about two courses down, what do you see? Two pieces of beautiful polished marble. In the rubble that they collected to build this church, evidently it was, was rubble from an old temple or an old office building, something that dated all the way back to antiquity, and they found these two pieces of gorgeous marble. On the other side, there's actually a chunk that came out of a, a beautiful marble column. The top of it that broke off, they kind of stuck it in the wall someplace. And as I looked at that, I thought, isn't that a picture of us? Isn't that an amazing picture of the church, right? You take all these broken pieces, you know, problems look better than others, right? Some of us have had a rougher time of it than others. And when it's put together, it creates something that is not only incredibly enduring, but magnificently beautiful. I don't know about anybody else, but I look at that, I think it's beautiful, right? Can we get the last slide? That's the inside. Yeah, a little different, isn't it? Takes your breath away, doesn't it? That's the, that's the desired effect. That's the desired effect. Um, it's really colorful. That, the colors are kind of muted in that particular picture. And it's all, drawn, it's all designed to draw your eyes upward to the person and character. That's us. That's us. Rough on the outside, assembled out of broken pieces, shards, rubble, all kinds of stuff, put together in something beautiful and enduring. I'll have to admit, 
I almost fell off my chair when Rachel led us in worship this morning. Remember the third song? The Lord builds the house. Nothing can knock it down. Nothing can destroy it. I told you the name of the church. The Panagia, that means all holy. The Panagia. Kapenikaria. Victor over the fire. Its very name means it could not be destroyed. The Turks tried. The Venetians tried. Even the Greek government tried. That's us. That's the truth that we live every day. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, as we look at this doctrinal statement over the next couple of weeks, Lord, it is just that. It's, it's a human attempt to summarize the incredible truths of your word. And Father, we know as, as humans that that is bound to fail. It's bound to have problems and issues and concerns. It's not going to be a perfect expression of who you are because, Father, you've already told us there's only two things that really express who you are, and that is your word and us. And, Father, in order for us to express who you are, Lord, we have tools. We have facilities. We have instruments. We have statements, Father, of what we believe. And I pray, Father, as we're about this task of expressing you in the world in which we believe, we would be found faithful, Father, through the affirmation, a firm, unqualified affirmation. When people ask us what we believe, we would be able to give them clear, straightforward answers, Lord, because that's what the world needs. Help us, we pray, Father, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.